You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of Driving Law with Kyla Lee and Paul Doroshenko of Acumen Law Corporation. Hello? <laughs> you didn't say your tagline. I didn't know I had a tagline. I had a tagline last week. Yeah. And I was uh, mocked on Twitter for it. And it was, of course, I was stealing somebody else's tagline. So I'm not, gonna, uh, I'm not going to employ a tagline this week. Okay, well, that's... Hey-o! Not... And we made it a minute in. <laughs> okay. Um, so when you and I were talking about topics for this week... You had told me that you wanted to talk about money laundering and the Peter German investigation. And I said, but Paul, what does money laundering have to do with driving law? Yeah, well, uh, it's actually got a lot to do with driving law, which is the thing. I, I wanted to talk about it because it's so topical. And it's been something that the people I follow on Twitter and discuss, uh, you know, things with on Twitter have been discussing at length. This uh, report that came out by uh, Peter German QC, who's a former uh, RCMP officer and was uh, QC? retained. QC, a lawyer? Yeah, he oh. was retained by the... Um, retained by the provincial government to do an investigation into money laundering in casinos. And he was also uh, tasked with looking at how this uh, sort of has affected other aspects of the economy and where else there is money laundering in BC, because we have something internationally known here in BC as the BC, the Vancouver model of money laundering. And it all starts with basically bringing in uh, duffel bags of cash into casinos that comes from all sorts of unlawful sources and then it sort of filters out into our economy. But uh, the interesting thing is Peter German's report that just came out uh, which you know widely um, pans the previous government uh, for its uh, ineptitude. Well I don't, I don't know that it's fair to say it pans the previous government. I think he's his report was less about assigning blame and more about identifying what the problem was. No, but it, it goes through on a very factual basis the steps that the previous governments have taken and things that they should or have done and didn't taken. do. Um, and despite the fact that these things were brought to their attention. So it wasn't intended to assign blame. It was intended to figure out what the hell's going on. And it was a, an emergency thing. A bunch of reporters keep have called me over the month saying, shouldn't we have a public inquiry, a Charbonneau inquiry or something like that? And I have been consistently of the view that figure it out quickly. Um, Fix it. If you want to, you know, get some prosecutors in there to try and look at these things after the fact, go ahead and do that and investigators, but figure it out quickly and stop the, the bleeding. Yeah. Um, so this report came out, the government's had it since April uh, and Peter German has moved on to do other things with respect to money laundering since and his next things that he was looking at is money laundering in the in the real estate industry in the housing market in particular and also money laundering in high-end cars so that is part of his current uh, task is to continue his investigation and to report back to the government I think it's going to take longer I don't know if he's doing the cars and the houses at the same time if he's doing this one step at a time starting with the worst thing which is casinos 
then looking at uh, at real estate, and then w- looking at cars. So wh- how, I don't understand this cars thing. Explain it. Because to me, you know, I buy a car. My dad always said to me, don't ever buy a brand new car. Because the moment you drive it off the lot, it's worth half what you paid for it. Well, that's true too, actually. There might be, uh, it might be also in the used car market. But um, basically, it seems in BC that you can just walk into a car dealership with cash. Mm-hmm. You can show up with $200,000 cash. Uh, and pay for a car with cash, and it doesn't seem that there seem to be uh, a situation where there's any questions asked of the source of that cash. So you and I know what uh, bundles of cash look like when uh, when they're wrapped up uh, for the uh, drug trafficking world. It's got a specific look, specific yep. type of elastics, and so forth. Well, um, that's how you know how much is there. Exactly. Um, <laughs> we don't accept cash in those circumstances, but <laughs> apparently car dealerships do. So you can go in and you can buy yourself a car. Now imagine uh, you want to uh, launder four or $500,000 or something like that. You can go buy a Ferrari and Ferraris don't really lose value because there's a waiting list for it. So you can purchase a Ferrari and you can turn around and sell it. You can sell a Ferrari back to the dealership. Uh, you can sell a Ferrari you know, privately around the world uh, and you can get a check. You can walk in with cash buy a Ferrari, it can be completely, you know, unlawfully obtained cash, and then you can turn around and sell it. And, and, and equally so with certain other exotic cars. So should there be oversight then for cash purchases of vehicles that cost more than $100,000? I think probably less than that. But you think about the requirements for a lawyer. Uh, you know, if we oh, accept yeah. cash, relatively small amount in BC, and it's probably similar with every law society across the country, um, we basically have to use it. We, you know, there's certain circumstances that we can't accept it, but it can be used to defend our client. But it can't be uh, returned to our client, for example, without basically, uh, you know, contacting a practice advisor at the law society, getting some very specific instructions, and then dealing with it by going down to the bank and returning cash to the person who paid us cash. And the whole idea there is to not allow lawyers to facilitate. Um, money, laundering. money laundering. So why is that not a rule? Like if it makes sense for lawyers to do it and you don't see, I mean, even the Supreme Court of Canada dealt with this a couple years ago when they tried to change the money laundering laws and make lawyers have to report clients and the Supreme Court of Canada is like, no, 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 no that's inconsistent with the privilege thing. Yeah. Um, why is it that those types of rules aren't in place for all cash transactions in the province? Yeah, I mean, I can imagine cash transactions that wouldn't necessarily require that or something like that. But I, you know, like what? What are people like? I'm sorry, I can't imagine a circumstance in which I would walk into a place with a briefcase full of cash and buy something. Yeah, I mean, I bought a car uh, once with. Uh, actually, I think you were involved. I gave in you that. the money. <laughs> you, did you? Did you lend I me loaned the... you the money because you were in Germany. Oh. And And so I had to go to my bank and I was like, I need this much cash, which was a large amount. And you went and and because the seller of the car, uh, which was an auction house, demanded to be paid in cash. Yes. Um, And uh, not a certified check, strangely. Um, Yeah, they refused to take a certified check. Yeah. So the, uh, I mean, I can imagine there are circumstances, but the point here is that if you show up with, uh, you know, $50,000 in cash, and you're going to buy a car that is not going to lose value or, you know, if it's a $300,000 car and you're trying to launder money, uh, you're better off to lose $20,000 uh, 
uh, in the transaction and get a check back, uh, you know, $300,000 card, get $280,000 back, uh, avoid paying taxes on that money. Do you think there's a markup on drugs for like the percentage you expect to lose in laundering your money? No. I mean, that, I, drug dealers are just thinking that they're going to get to keep their money, but um, yeah, I mean, th this can be all sorts of unlawfully obtained cash, right? It can be money that's been brought in illegally over the border, just cash that's been brought in. I, right. I think I told you once I was standing at the uh, at the money exchange at the airport, and some people got off the airplane in the international terminal and walked over to the money exchange, and they had stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks, stacks of cash, of cash yeah. like just clearly uh, over like, the yeah, probably about forty fifty thousand dollars they had there. But in you don't know that they didn't declare it and pay their taxes. I have no idea. I have no idea. All I know is they walked up to the currency exchange in the airport and did it all there with a, like a uh, they had a, a backpack of cash. I yeah. was waiting to pick somebody up at the international terminal. And I watched this whole thing happen. I was another time I was in the bank in. Uh, in Yaletown, and I watched a guy with stacks of Australian, American, uh, and Chinese currency, and uh, they the bank asked not a single question. He had probably $150,000 there. I don't know. I mean, ton of money. Anyway, point here is that the government is looking at a driving-related thing, which is money laundering uh, in the high-end automotive sector, which is um, something that in BC, if you're not in the lower mainland, you wouldn't really get it, but we apparently are like Ferrari, Lamborghini, Bentley, Rolls-Royce dealers here are the number one Ferrari, Lamborghini, Bentley, and Rolls-Royce dealers in North America. There's tons of these cars around. If you mm -hmm. go up into Dunbar uh, and uh, if a garage door is open, you'll see a Bentley that's one or two years old and a Range Rover beside it, and they won't have any license plates on it because oh, yeah. nobody lives there. They're just basically storing their cars there for when they come to visit. You know, it's really interesting because, like, you and I just got back from Dallas, and then I was on vacation in San Francisco just, I, I got believe, back yesterday. I can't believe you took a vacation. What? I took two days off. Um, but I San Francisco, comparatively expensive as far as housing prices and rents, but you look around the streets and you're not seeing the high-end cars that you see here. Well, maybe because we, they don't have the... Uh, the brakes. They don't have the, they don't have the uh, stacks of cash going in. I yeah. don't know. I, maybe there's some, like, oversight mm -hmm. in cash payments for luxury cars there. Well, it's an interesting thing, and I'm, I mean, I'm concerned about the vilification of the, uh, of the industry. Like, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know that it's uh, fair to, uh, to be looking at them with this dark cloud over them. Uh, but at the same time, you know, if this is how it's working, uh, you know, the government's got to step in and do something. Well, and, I don't and, understand. And like, how, if you have the money and it's legitimate funds, then it can be in your bank account. And if you have the money and it's legitimate funds and it's in your bank account, why are you not just using a cashier's check or paying with your debit card? You can phone the bank and get an exception on your daily limit. No, I know. There's Look, there's lots of ways to pay for the car. That's not the point. I mean, the point is that the car dealerships may have a hint of what's going on, but if you're a if you're a salesman and the Maserati dealer, uh, you know you just basically want to sell a car. Oh, you want your commission? Yeah, you and if feed the, your family. And if the guy sells the Maserati uh, two weeks later for twenty thousand dollars less than he paid, you're just thinking to yourself, well, we just made you know we're going to sell this for our, this Maserati, and we're going to make another ten thousand dollars on the same car. Uh, right. You know, you're just trying to make the sale, and those car dealerships, you know, exist and they pay taxes. So, you know, you're, you're, and, and they want to feed their family. Exactly. So, okay. well, um, I'm, I'm, 
will be interested to see whether or not um, cars are being used for money laundering. And I have to say, my suspicion is, yeah. <laughs> so There you go. Money laundering and driving law together at last. Well, and they're looking into it, so obviously they have more than a suspicion. Right? Oh, yeah. They wouldn't be looking. Conducting an investigation if they weren't, uh, if they weren't reasonably... Uh, confident that they're going to find money laundering in the high-end automotive sector. but It's like the one thing you learn very quickly doing what we do is, you know, the police tell you this little bit of information in a media report, and you know there's so much more that's going on that you don't know about. Like, my friends are asking me because I have family on the island, and, and they're all asking about these people that went missing, because I have a family member who knows these people. They just found their bodies, and they, they say, well, you know, we what's going on what like why is this happening what do you think's happening and i'm like well <laughs> based on what they've said i can tell you there's a lot they're not saying yeah well it's we often know what's going on we can mm-hmm. speculate about it in the office and we're usually correct but we're not going to publicly speculate in no. most of those circumstances but yeah. that's a one of those strange things about our job yes yeah you actually have a fairly good idea what the police are doing in their investigation oh i see what's happening steps. here yes I won't tell you. <laughs> anyway, and uh, most of the criminal defense lawyers across the you know country who uh, listen to our podcast, welcome. And uh, I guess you're already uh, aware welcome of to what the we're club. talking about. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Speaking of having a fairly good idea of what the police are doing, you got gas on your way here to record the podcast. And I'm sure as you were pulling into the gas station, you were glancing around to see if there were any police hiding behind lamp standards or bushes looking for people on their cell phones. Yes, I am. And, uh, you know, I know the spots where they often are. I know you and I were uh, out on the street one day and we saw some police officers there who we knew and went over and said hello to them. But, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's one of the things they do. In BC, uh, of course, if you get a ticket for using an electronic device, which is uh, something that's relatively easy to get uh, and you get two tickets in less than two years right now the current policy is you're facing a four-month driving prohibition minimum uh, as a as a minimum and if you've got something else on your license and you even get one ticket on your something else on your driving record and you get one ticket uh, you're facing the potential of um, of some sort of God uh, forbid you have your N, in which case you're, you know, you're, you've already had a four-month prohibition for the first one and now you're facing seven. Yeah, or more. Yeah. So um, it's pretty dire consequences these days Huge. if you uh, if you pick up your cell phone at a set of lights or any time. Uh, you know, there's the dangerous things like the people Snapchatting, uh, you know, themselves driving. Uh, and then there's the uh, the much less dangerous things like, you know, looking at the front of your phone to see whether or not you've got a text message or having it sitting beside you. Mm-hmm. But the point is the consequences are harsh, which leads to, unfortunately, people doing some really stupid things. Yeah, and uh, I, I think that's really borne out in something that happened yesterday. A Burnaby RCMP officer, also at a gas station, doing cell phone enforcement, sees a guy uh, on his phone, goes to stop him, and rather than him stopping, he takes off and uh, breaks her arm in the process. Oh, is that what happened? Her arm was broken. broken arm. So it's, you know, if there's charges, it could well be causing bodily harm charges. Yeah, that's significant. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. I was on the road yesterday, and I didn't get to follow all the details. The news was coming out in dribbles and drabbles. There's lots of news. Those are words. (laughs) There was lots of news yesterday and some pretty horrible stuff. There was three deaths at Shannon Falls, and then there was, yeah, there's lots to talk Mm -hmm. about. But, yeah, that's... uh, 
pretty dramatically stupid. Um, the guy was driving a Dodge Nitro, which um, is, uh, I know when Sergio uh, Macchioni took over Chrysler, when um, Fiat bought Chrysler, he's a lawyer from Montreal and he runs Fiat Chrysler. I think he's still the president of it. He's the one who turned it around, also Ferrari and Maserati. But he took one look at the Dodge Nitro and said, this is not a retail car. We cannot sell this car. And they immediately stopped producing it because it was such a piece of junk. And anybody who buys it, I'm always looking at it going, well, I sure hope it was the right price. But this person who bought it drove away. Drove away. Yeah, she tried to stop him. And I mean, we, the details of what happened are unclear. But in the process, she ended up um, being struck by the car and um, breaking her arm. And people found her on the ground. Mm. So she was discovered by civilians after the fact yeah. on the ground and rushed to hospital. What this tells me is, I think, two things. And I'm prepared to take a little flack for being critical of the police here. But sometimes the methods they use in this cell phone enforcement carry a huge amount of danger. And you have to wonder, is the benefit of you know, dealing with the red light text message checkers, you know, the low end of the spectrum of dangerousness in cell phone enforcement worth that level of risk of, you know, hiding and jumping out at people who are behind the wheels of vehicles. And the second problem is when the consequences are so severe that people react this way. I don't, I'm not going to criticize the police and I, I think you're, you are going to get flack and to some extent deservedly so because we don't know the circumstances of what she did and the steps she took. We don't know. I mean, no, you know, but I know I, what I, I see all the time. I know, but I also see police officers being pretty careful about themselves and not being reckless in their attempts to apprehend people. I guess what I would say is that, um, I mean, I, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm slagging people who drive Dodge Nitros, uh, <laughs> but it's a remarkably stupid and dangerous thing to do. Uh, to drive away and you've got a police officer there who's trying to enforce the law mm -hmm. but we see remarkably stupid things that people do and you have to take into account when you're making laws or you are conducting policing and if you're trying to enforce the law that stupid uh, actions are are something that follows and we noticed I don't know we haven't talked about this in a long time if any government is considering um, trying to bring in a media roadside prohibition like we have. We noticed that hit and runs went way up yep. after the IRP scheme came out. And police officers, senior officers in, in Vancouver told us that they saw a gigantic spike in hit and run cases when it was regularly broadcast that, you know, we have the toughest drunk driving laws in BC. And basically what was happening is people who maybe had one drink or, you know, drank hours ago, or maybe they were impaired in some cases, um, instead of sticking around and doing the right thing after an accident, were driving away in panic because they were so scared of the consequences of the drinking aspect of it. So here you've got somebody maybe, and I'm not defending him unless he comes to the office, but here you've got somebody maybe who had one of these tickets before knows that he's now facing a four-month driving prohibition. He drives for a living. His life is on the line. He looks at his damn phone. He can phone. only afford to buy a Dodge Nitro. Hey, he's poor. He can only afford to buy one of the worst 
you know, cars that's on the road, uh, poorest quality vehicles. Sorry, Dodge Nitro owners. Thank God there's very few of you. Uh, Chrysler also probably would have kept building them. If you're if listening they, to a podcast they, called Driving Law, you're yeah, probably not yeah, driving a yeah, Nitro. Yeah, the uh, I'm sure if Chrysler uh, was selling a lot of them, they would have continued to make them even if they were pieces of garbage. But in any event, um, the uh, Canadian lawyer has done a very good job running that company. Gotta say, give it to Canadian lawyers. Hands up for the Canadian lawyers. Uh, the um, it was a remarkably stupid thing to do, and uh, I I don't know that I would defend the person under those circumstances with the basis of, you know, not knowing all of the facts here. But I do see the trend, uh, and it's a problem that we see. And when uh, the public perception is that you are not going to be treated fairly by the government, people tend to make stupid decisions. Yeah, and and look at the fact too that this occurred right after there was this huge amount of media attention paid to the over over broad consequences that were given to that woman, uh, Marika Winthrop. Oh yeah, 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 that's right. That yeah. I mean that was in the news. It was it was the talk of all of the news stations about how she got her prohibition overturned and how stupid the judge thought the consequences were given the lack of severity of her conduct. Yeah, her mother had a stroke or something. And then, yeah, and she yeah. was taking a call from, like, a there was a messaging service that would message her if there was an emergency, and she was taking a call to deal with that. Yeah. And the legislation says you can use it in an emergency. It doesn't say just calling 911 emergencies, but she didn't argue it. She paid it. Yeah. And then she ends up with this huge driving prohibition. Yeah, she probably would have been convicted in any event. I maybe, doubt it. It's not. an emergency. An emergency alert app alerts her to something and she responds. That's, oh, okay. that's, yeah. a, that's yeah. a classic that's, emergency. Okay. Well, yeah, so she might have had a defense there. Okay, I didn't know about that part. But the uh, ultimately it was a ended up a review decision before the Tribunal of Road Safety BC that upheld the driving prohibition. And then she appealed that to BC Supreme Court, yes. at which point somebody sensible took a look at it, which is a BC Supreme Court judge and said, this is ridiculous. Yes, yeah. that's exactly what happened. Right. And so what is really troubling about that is the clear connection between the media uh, attention that was paid to it and the uh, and then this this conduct. It's the officer can see um, this person using the phone, and they're probably not using it in dangerous circumstances because I doubt she was you know standing at a gas station walking a guy watching a guy driving and talking. It was probably a red light situation. Yeah, yeah. And he's about to face a huge prohibition. He knows this is coming because the media has been announcing it. Yeah. No. No. I get you. And I, this is exactly what we. What we saw with the IRP scheme. So, I mean, what do you do? Is there not a way for the government to create different classes of cell phone offenses? Like, for example, when the law was first introduced, they had the various classes. They had end drivers violating their restrictions by using a cell phone, which was treated differently than the actual using an electronic device offense. And then there was the more serious texting or emailing while driving offense, which is obviously a lot more dangerous because your attention is fully focused on your phone and your hands are occupied doing that. But then as, you know, so that was 2010 when that was introduced, as the years have gone on, that distinction has become completely blurred, and now it's just one offense for everything. Yeah, I was speaking to a police officer in traffic court the other day about this, um, and um, they said the rationale that was explained to them was that um, it's so difficult for them to catch people who are actually driving and doing it, unless they're you know stupid enough to post it on the internet. Um, the uh, you'd have to be pretty dumb to like post on the internet that you're driving and using your phone. 
you know, people do it. Um, but the, the uh, that's what ICBC <laughs> looks for after the accident. Yeah, I was going to say it's not. Let's hope it's not a live like a live thing with a timestamp or like anything in the background that could identify your location because you could be ticketed on the basis of that video. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but the um, no separate issue that we were just talking about was the uh, whether or not it's um, the, the difference here at, at being parked. Uh, versus driving and the police have had it explained to them that the rationale is that people who are picking it up um, at the at the lights are likely going to be the same people and they just want to discourage it overall and they want to show that there's you know visible enforcement of it to try and dissuade people uh, from doing it all the time and that. it's really difficult for them to get the evidence you know, at the time when the people are cruising down the road. I've and, had plenty of clients cruising down the road on the phone. Yes, I know. But the point here is that um, I, I'm not, I don't agree with it. I mean, this police officer was also expressing his frustration with it, didn't agree that that was appropriate and thinks that there should be something different. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, the, the point here is that that was the rationale. I'm just telling you what the rationale is. I knew right. that. Uh, but but I it was, that's how it's been explained to them. Why, but why can't the government just go back to the separate classes of offenses? Like using phone at red light, using phone while vehicle in motion. Like why is that such a hard distinction for them? And to have consequences that more accurately reflect the the action undertaken by the driver. And yes, it's hard to prove uh, prove it when somebody's using it. It's harder to enforce. But if it is indeed the rationale that you want to deter people, why is using it at a red light ticket not a I think deterrent? We, I think we've talked about this before, and the issue is a is a um, philosophical issue in British Columbia. The the government is never enthusiastic about paying for policing in BC, so there's not much visible enforcement yeah, of anything. Yeah, yeah. That's what Cash uh, Eats said. And then they uh, come down really, 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 really hard on people. And if you go to other provinces, um, you will likely see the police much more often. I remember uh, um, driving from uh, Ottawa to Montreal and there being a police officer every 10 kilometers down the road doing speed enforcement. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, and um, you just don't see that in BC. So the likelihood of getting caught is fairly slim, but the deterrent is the extreme, extreme consequences if you are caught. And uh, that's why so many people are motivated to dispute these things when it happens. Well, I'm, but it doesn't, I don't think it affects behavior. Well, I'm fine. I mean, if they don't want to pay for policing, they're going to pay for police that get injured because of their stupid law. Yeah, I, don't try that. <laughs> don't try. Why don't we? We should maybe edit that out. Uh, no, anyway, no, no, no. I mean, I just I'm so cynical. I I'm just this is my cynicism coming out. I know, I know. I hear you. Anyway, I, I just don't. I like. I, I mean, Akash he'd said it. It's the question is how much is this going to cost and how much money is it going to make? And it doesn't make any money to do it the sensible way, and it costs more money to do it the sensible way. Well. Uh, they are perpetually trying to take police officers out of court where they're held responsible and where you can actually question it and challenge the evidence and trying to put them on the road. And police officers, when they're on the road, yes, can do more uh, when they're out there on the road. But unfortunately, they learn the whole responsibility of policing by being cross-examined in court. Well, this and is an experience that I had last week. What, what happened? I was in a trial. I was cross-examining an officer about something unrelated to the case, but a prior sworn statement collaterally related. 
in which he said something that was obviously not true at the time he swore the document and acknowledged that and testified as to how this is just the practice of how it's done, even though it's wrong. Yeah, I know. Well, and you try and explain that to an adjudicator at Road Safety BC and they'll, you know, they'll just make you look terrible in the decision that they ultimately render. Yeah. But the, um, but this when is I a finally, big problem. But when I was able to confront Prosecutors him with it, it, when I was able to confront him with it in cross-examination and show him the error of his ways, he was like, whoa, like, I never thought about it this way. You are right. What I've done here is wrong and we need to fix this. Yeah, I know. But and that's how they learn about it, and they don't learn about it. If that's they, how police no, learn, no, and you no. have no learning. The IRP scheme, all of this, it takes the learning out. I mean, you ask... People may think that we're cynical lawyers and that we're just out to defend drunk drivers, but I've spent a lot of time in the hallway with police officers over the years explaining things to them, um, you know, and they've been receptive. Uh, there was one time, lovely officer I can think of right now, who I let him read my cross-examination. Oh, yeah. Um, after we resolved it because of some problems in it, but the, uh, I let him read my cross-examination so he could learn a little bit. And uh, mm -hmm. as he was reading it, reading it, he was going, oh, this is good. Oh man, you had me here. Oh, yeah. this is good. You know, but the point was that he, you know, you want, you want the police to conduct proper investigations. Yeah. Well, the last impaired driving trial I ran two two cross-examinations of two officers and one of them at the end apparently reported back to Crown that I learned, I learned a lot. The other one reported back to Crown that I don't think he's ever going to speak to me again. Eh, well, you know, <laughs> can't win them all. Yeah, yeah, I know. I read that. Actually, it's a really good decision if you want to look for it. It's on a, it's a provincial court decision. It's not reported. It's not reported. No. no. Okay. It's no. a fantastic decision. Uh, if there's any impaired driving lawyers uh, listening who want it, uh, contact us because there's basically every... Uh, charter violation you breaches. could possibly every every <laughs> charter violation you could possibly imagine ones that I'd never thought to argue before but um, yeah all the breaches yeah. all the breaches but you know uh, the the smart officers are the ones who take that cross examination experience as a learning opportunity and that was the trial I did last week in Victoria the really nice thing about it was there were two officers both of them were cross-examined extensively, and at the end, both of them were so nice, and they thanked me for it yeah. because it helped them get better at their jobs. Yeah, well, that does happen. I have yeah. been thanked. I have been thanked. I've also had. You're welcome. I'm glad I've you're also, not credible. I've also, <laughs> I've also had police officers who would not look at me. Yeah. Uh, in the hallway afterward, um, that yes. happens too. Anyway. Um, Okay, so shifting topics from uh, what the government is doing to try and make money to how the government is trying to spend a little money. The Very little money. Uh, yes, a little, a little money. Um, the Canadian government has released a statement uh, indicating that they're going to be giving, um, everybody's saying a million dollars, but it's not a million. It's $919,065. I don't know where that number came from how they come to such an odd number. Um, but they're giving that over three years to the Center for Addiction and Mental Health to study the effects of cannabis on drivers in a certain age group. Chump change. And why now? You passed the law. The legislation is now the in place. The Senate 
asked all these questions about the fact that you have no scientific backing for any of the things that you're doing. The police are trying to figure out how they're going to enforce this when there's no scientific backing. Um, they've only got this speculative stuff from the U.S. That's okay. We can study it over three years because it'll take about three years before the laws are struck down for being unfounded scientifically. And yeah. then they'll have the research to create scientifically valid laws. But I, like, I wonder, was this a how did this come out? Did they do a press release announcing yes. 920 grand? Yeah. That's all they're going to spend. $920,000. Oh Maybe they're just going to pay the scientists really poorly. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Who knows? I mean, I guess don't have any subjects. and uh, Don't have any subjects. And definitely whatever you do, don't buy any good scientific testing equipment. Yeah. I don't know. It's, I mean, it's amazing that they're, they're doing this, that they would make that announcement like and be proud of it. They should be ashamed of making such an announcement. Well, I think they basically had to. They were backed into a corner because literally everybody, when they were but, looking... But this, at, this was a long time ago. Like, we've been, everybody's been criticizing them for a year now. Over that, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I know. And, and everybody's been saying, hey, this is stupid. You, you've got no scientific foundation for it. And they've been going, don't worry, we'll get one. Yeah. $920,000 worth. <laughs> Yeah, they could pay me $920,000 and I could tell them that uh, they're not going to get any further. Yeah, well, we could have done a, what, why three years? Why three years? What are they trying to accomplish over three years? I tell you, it's, I'm, I'm maybe, here's maybe my cynicism again. They're trying to get a scientific foundation for the laws they're going to write after the ones they've written are struck down. Maybe. Um, the uh, Or they just plan on redoing it when everything falls apart. The um, Or filing fresh evidence at the maybe, Supreme Court of Canada. Maybe the whole idea here is just to look at the statistics that are gathered. So that could be maybe, it. Maybe, but it's the be... Centre for Addiction and Mental Health, not StatsCan. No, I know. StatsCan will gather it, but the police gather this information, and maybe they're just going to examine the information, and uh, the whole idea is just to interpret it. If that's the case, then 900,000, sure. But um, really, like, that's all you're doing. Uh, you know, the a lot of people were saying that we've rushed into legalization. I think we've been ridiculously delaying it and that it's stupid and it should have happened a long time ago. Sure. But um, if you want to actually criticize the government for not being prepared, uh, you could say, yeah, you know, you were elected three years ago or whatever the hell they were, um, and uh, and you did nothing about this before passing the legislation is frankly shocking, particularly when you've got medical users across the country using cannabis for a long time, and those people are more than available to be studied. Oh yeah, I mean, I could probably name uh, half a dozen high-profile cannabis users who would gladly volunteer themselves for those studies to advance the science and the law. Yeah, in and, any event, it's just, it's just shocking to me that it's so little yeah. money and that they're doing it now, and that they actually seem to like be holding it out as something to be proud of. Yeah, there is a there is a statement uh, from the professor Bruna Brands. I don't know who that is. They're a research scientist at Health Canada um, and collaborating with the Canadian uh, Center for Addiction and Mental Health that says um, that they are going to use the funds to enable them to set limits, like for alcohol. Oh, my God. They already set the limits. Well, I was speaking to a prosecutor today whose name I will not name because there's lots of people give me all sorts of interesting information. And uh, that prosecutor told me 
that um, they've had training now about uh, the new legislation and that it is, uh, quote unquote, a shit show, that they mm-hmm. basically see so many impediments to being able to prosecute under the legislation um, that um, people are looking at it and wondering what the fuck the government was thinking. Well, I mean, I, I think the biggest impediment they're going to encounter is this connection between the drug recognition evaluation and the blood reading, right? You have um, the results of the drug recognition evaluation and the evaluator will say, you are impaired by a narcotic analgesic. And then they take your blood or your urine, they test it, they find that, and it creates a presumption in the law that you can rebut that you were impaired by that drug. Not just that you had that drug in you, but also that that drug was impairing you. So your presumption that you're impaired and that you're impaired by that drug. Oh, that's huge. I mean, it's a it's an impossible hurdle. But I don't think the I don't think you're going to get that far. I don't you're think not going to get that far because the lab will never test it in time, and you're going to run into all these Jordan related roadblocks. You are going to um, you, you you're going to run into the first problem, which is the RNP grounds to get to the point of the of the DRE. Yeah. Uh, each one that we've had so far, we've looked at it and come to the conclusion that we would probably succeed before they even got to the DRE because the police didn't have the grounds to make that detention and make that DRE demand. So that's how, you know, all of them, anyone we've had so far has fallen apart. We're ready for it. We've gone and taken a bunch of DRE training. And we're more ready than the government. We're more ready than the government. We got somebody who flew a guy up from Texas uh, last December to uh, to train us on drug recognition evaluation, a guy who used to train all the police in the States and did mm-hmm. his PhD in, uh, in looking at... Uh, that, that whole concept, but the, the none of the cases we've had have gone really past the RNP ground stage, so it's been an yeah. unlawful DRE. But then you get the DRE, and you can find nothing but problems in the DRE. And I've talked to a bunch of these officers who are assigned for DRE. Actually, I was talking to one um, in uh, Campbell River the other day, and he's the DRE for the Upper Island. Oh, interesting. And um, yeah, he's he's conducted quite a few um, quite a few DRE examinations. Uh, but where they went after that, you know. Um, yeah, they usually end in a 24-hour prohibition, which is a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because <laughs> you can't issue it at the detachment. Yeah. Well, I think they've uh, most of them have learned that lesson. They're talking to me. And mm-hmm. when I'm talking to them in court, they're like, oh, yeah, you're you're there with Kyla Lee. She's the one who did that one on the 24 hours. Yeah. Yeah, we knew we were doing it wrong. We, we'd been doing it wrong for years, most of them. <laughs> yeah. We, well, either you... I get you. You had to be an idiot to do that that way, anyway. Yeah. Uh, or yeah, we knew we were doing it wrong, but it didn't really matter. Or I didn't have grounds until I did the DRE. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, they have a problem with that part. They have a problem with that. Like they shouldn't have arrested the guy, maybe. But yeah. whatever. Anyway, you should know there is a secret that we're holding back, and we're not going to tell you. And that is a fundamental flaw of the DRE in Canada that just does not allow it to go ahead. And any time we get one of these cases, they have a big problem. Yeah. And I was surprised it wasn't argued in Bingley, uh, but um, but Bingley was Bingley. not. Uh, I mean, I don't want to criticize. Bingley, because it was a very specific type of challenge, but I think it was a real missed opportunity. Well, it was basically statutory interpretation in the end, it's because news. it was in the regulations. <laughs> Who cares about that? Um, but the, um, you know, Beverly McLaughlin laid out that you can still undermine all of that stuff through cross-examination. Yes. Um, and so that, you know, Which is, there's not much and, of a presumption that arises. That's my frustration end. with Bingley and Alex. Like, both of those two major decisions 
you know, Alex, the guy never gave charter notice. He never argued it as a charter issue. And you're like, well, why didn't you? It's not that hard. You're doing all of that cross-examination anyway. And then for Bingley, you know, why are you not doing the whole thing? Like, why are we not dealing with all of DRE instead of just whether or not they're automatically an expert or whether you need to have a voir dire? Well, it's getting better, though. I mean, I mean how often do voir dires on some, an officer's expertise ever end in them not being declared an expert? No, I know. But the DRE, the whole aspect of DRE is falling apart nicely, uh, you know, across North America. We've got 25 states now yeah. that uh, basically actual judgments actual judgments where they basically said this is uh, this is uh, junk uh, science junk science and that this is uh, hocus pocus thinking and so forth and that it's not reliable and we're not going to found convictions on it so and again we can thank the American lawyers who are so much further ahead than us on this on this one yeah for sure but you know they've been uh, they've had uh, this major concentration on it. I remember they rolled out all these DREs in yeah. the states, and all of a sudden everybody was a drug driver, and they keep talking about how drug driving is way up. Well, it's it's only up when you train people to uh, do <laughs> it, DREs, and then suddenly they find, find everybody. Things when you're yeah. looking for suddenly them. Suddenly, when you start, yeah. So just yeah. think about how many yellow cars are on the road next time you're driving. Oh wow! They're everywhere. It's not that many. Anyway, the uh, <laughs> but I've been looking at green lately. Um, the that's because uh, you can't see yellow. Yeah. I'm never sure if it's yellow or green because I'm colorblind. But in any event, um, yeah, the uh, I, I just think that it's going to fall apart so badly in the states, and we've got enough connections in the states that we, if we ever get the opportunity, every time the prosecutors are always uh, willing to, you know, recognize our arguments here. But if we get somebody who really, really, really wants to run that thing, uh, we're going to just rely on some of our contacts in the U.S. to uh, to debunk it. Mm-hmm. Mythbusters, Acumen Law Corporation edition. Man, we should, once marijuana's legal, we should totally mythbust the SFSTs for marijuana. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Who, yeah. who wants to be dosed? You or me? Yeah. Doesn't have to. We could bring a listener on. It'll be legal. It'll be, we It'll can bring be legal. We'll be allowed on. to. Yeah. yeah, I know. No. Um, no, the problem is I fail the SFSTs as it is because of... Do you think the Law Society would have a problem if we made an article student do it? Like, part of your job, you must take marijuana. <laughs> when it's lawful. Uh, when we wouldn't make somebody drink. Yeah. yeah. I'm joking. I'm joking. We uh, wouldn't do that. Uh, They'd all volunteer. <laughs> they probably would, yeah. yeah. We have an in-office uh, in joke at 420 every day. Uh, we don't actually use marijuana, but at 420, we often point out to each other, oh, it's 420. Yeah. yeah. Time to light a doobie. The other thing. It's not that funny. It's not a funny joke. No, but, it's you not know, funny. But, you know, take what you can get. But the other thing about this this drug impairment study and uh, is this research is going to be effectively useless. Like either it's either it's going to confirm what they already wrote in the law, which I exceedingly doubt that it will, because all sorts of other scientific research have already said no. Or it's going to say this law is bad, in which case. It'll be too late because the law will already be struck down. Kyle Lee, you just undermined your entire argument. You said it was effectively useless, and now those were actually very useful reasons to. How is that useful? No, it doesn't matter. It's not going to make a difference, is what I'm saying. No, it may not make. Ultimately, well, maybe it will. Maybe they'll, you know, look at it and say the law is wrong, and we've got to change it. No. When have you ever heard a government say the law is wrong and we've got to change it? Well, it could be a different government. Justin Trudeau's in trouble today for the groping allegation. 
I, I have so much to say about that, but that's not driving law, so I won't bring it up on this podcast. No, well, that's good. Yeah. You're really sticking to the rules. I am I am sticking to the rules because I... Well, you gave me the leeway at the beginning, though, on the, uh, on the exotic you, cars. But you made the connection, and I'm always excited to see how driving law touches so many different areas of the law. It's true. It's true. Anyway, yeah, so I can't make that connection there with uh, Justin Trudeau and the groping, unless maybe it was in a car. But, uh, okay, so you you say that this prosecutor told you that one of the issues is going to be this reasonable grounds thing, but what about the rule that saliva testing? No, no, testing? that's not, not, oh, that's okay. not what that's they not said. What you're they told. just said oh, okay. overall just shit it was show. a shit show. Just yeah. general shit show. Shit and your, show. your prediction is reasonable grounds. But where does well, saliva testing... Well, no, that's testing... what we've had every time, right? Okay, but where does saliva testing factor into that? Because now you've got a device that says, hey... You're over the limit. But look at approved screening devices, the alcohol testers that are actually reasonably reliable, and how often are we able to show that in the circumstances the police officer used them, it didn't provide reliable grounds. Right. It's a surprising number of times. Thank, you know, and it's got to be more for us over the years as we, and, you know, ended up with this exotically stupid information that we've got about And while the ASDs. alcohol ones uh, provide virtually unassailable, to quote Justice Moldaver, grounds that somebody is uh, He's so wrong. He's so wrong yep. on that. Yep, but, you know, I, I'll figure out another way. Uh, <laughs> I know I'm not supposed to criticize the court and say they're wrong, but he's just so wrong on that. It's not virtually unassailable, and in fact, it's readily assailable. But we assail it all the time. Yes. Yeah. Um, no, but is that same type of logic going to extend automatically to saliva testing? Like, do you think judges are just going to say, "Well, it's the same thing; it's a screening test designed to give them grounds," or are they going to look at what's behind it? Because when you when you the original cases and the original studies and arguments dealing with using an ASD to give you RMP grounds looked at how everyone is impaired at 100 and so you can say this with saliva testing there's not that same connection we don't know everyone is impaired at so much thc no but the the offense of having the prohibited value of or um, concentration of thc could theoretically you know come from one of those saliva testers but, but i think Paul, we they have didn't to, write the we law have, we have to they, see the they, saliva they, tester they didn't write the law though to say that if you have reasonable grounds to believe you have two and a half nanograms of thc in 100 milliliters of blood you can demand a dre they said if you have reasonable grounds to believe that a person is impaired by a drug yeah so there you go kyla you've already figured it out sorry and I've no. revealed the argument. No, well, no, it's fine. <laughs> Someone's going to argue yeah, it. Yeah, I know. Well, somebody won't, will argue it, but it's not going to be somebody who listens to the uh, to yeah. our podcast here. <laughs> That's the dream, right? To have the podcast cited in a Supreme Court of Canada decision? I think more likely that you would have one of your uh, cases that should have gone to the Supreme Court of Canada but didn't. I could see that being cited in a Supreme Court of Canada decision. Bad Legal's Twitter was cited in a uh, in a law textbook recently well there you go and that textbook then was cited in the supreme court of canada decision so bad legal was essentially there cited by the scc well i know you know people across the country are watching your videos so i don't know if, who's listening to the podcast but people are watching the videos the videos are great if you're not watching the videos watch the videos i think we should, you should put them together should i make and, a plug no i think you should put them together and make a podcast out of them but they're so short. Yeah, Nobody's no, going to listen could, to a three and a half minute podcast. No, but you could put three of them together and then have short podcasts. It's mm, a lot of work. Anyway, <laughs> we're getting getting off topic. Yes. Yeah, it is a lot um, of work. You do a lot of work. 
the saliva testing, though, I think is going to be an issue. Like, I think there's going to be a strange evidentiary hurdle created by bad wording in the legislation. No, I, I think they're dead. And yeah. I think, you know, until they show us a device that's actually reliable, I think they have a huge problem. Oh, and yeah. I think the court's going to yeah. be more than willing to look at the unreliability of the device. Never mind, you can only use them basically at the lower mainland about six weeks of the year. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Did they did they test for humidity? Humidity? Oh, that's they a good only, question. Um, we only heard about testing for temperature, but what about using it in the rain? <laughs> you know, I'm like, telling you we need to buy one. We need well, to we get will one. as soon as we can. We've we've got all the breathalyzers that you could possibly imagine. We have the largest private collection of breath testing equipment anywhere in Canada. Yes, and uh, I've operated. I think we talked about this last time. Yeah, did yeah, we? Okay, yeah. yeah. Summary of every instrument Kyla's operated. A lot of them. <laughs> every one. Every damn one. I'd love to do a video like just showing our instruments and how they work. We should, yeah. Okay. We also have uh, radar devices, laser devices. We're freaks. And we're going to get saliva testers and we're going to show the problems. Exactly. All right. But we got to get the right one, so. Because we don't need $919,065 to do legitimate research into this. Yeah, most uh, most of the breathalyzers we bought were like around a grand. Or less. Yeah. Um, which is why I think the government should give us some money to show the flaws. Well, we said for a long time that if the provincial government had contacted us before considering certain things, they would save themselves a lot of money in all of those judicial reviews. And uh, again, $920,000 could be well spent if they want to give it to Acumen Law Corporation for a legal opinion. Or $920 to let me play with an instrument. Sure. I can find some flaws. Yeah. Found flaws with all the breathalyzer. Anyway, <laughs> money poorly spent, too little, too late to quote the bare naked ladies. And uh, and uh, all connected to driving. Once again on Driving Law with Kyla Lee. And Paul Doroshenko. And if you need to reach us to talk about money laundering in cars or cell phone tickets, or you want to give us $919,065 to conduct a study, we will do it. To give us a call at 604-685-8889 or check us out online, vancouvercriminallaw.com.